This is the Education Gadfly Show. Yeah, that's why I'm giving it, because you went ballistic on the study, Mike. Oh my gosh, Amber. You went ballistic. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join me in welcoming our special guest for this week, Andrew Ujifusa. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Mike. Did I butcher that or I get it? No, you got it. All right. Yeah, baby. Andrew, if if people don't know, but you should know, he is a reporter for Education Week. He covers federal and congressional K-12 policy and politics and is the co-author of the Politics K-12 blog and and usually is the author of the uh, Politics K-12 Twitter account, as we can see from your sense of humor. No comment. (laughs) Also joining us, a man who has no Twitter account. David Griffith. Happy New Year, Mike. Is that true? You still don't have a Twitter account or do you lurk on Twitter following us and watching? If, if I lurk, I'm really bad at it. So, uh-huh. <laughs> ah, my goodness. Well, yes. Happy New Year to both of you. Our first podcast That's of right. 2019. Exciting. I love it. This is, I don't know how many years. We're into like 12, 13, something like that. A long time. We were doing podcasts way before they were cool, Andrew. Way before. Wow. It was like literally Al Gore had done a podcast and I was like, Hey guys, maybe we should do a podcast. And that's why they weren't cool. And that was, exactly, it was me and Al Gore. And yeah, and that that was that, that does explain it. Thanks, David. Okay, I'm now out from under the bus you just threw me under. Uh, we are excited to talk about federal education policy, even though Andrew, come on, nobody else cares about federal education policy. I don't know what you do all day. There's nothing happening, and nothing gonna happen. Uh, in 2019, right? Tell us why we are wrong. We'll do that all in our Ed Reform Update. All right, Andrew, I was half joking, but not totally joking that it does feel like there's not much happening on the federal beat, even though you guys still have clickbait if you mention Betsy DeVos's name. Uh, but tell me where I'm wrong. What's uh, what is happening in Washington? What do you think is going to matter in 2019? Well, I'll pass on the clickbait remark. But <laughs> so I think there's a certain irony here in that I think to a certain extent you're correct is that I don't think anyone is expecting uh, a lot of action on Capitol Hill in terms of bills being passed and Trump signing them and all that. But I think there will be a lot of attention on Capitol Hill for the simple reason that folks, especially early on this year, are going to be watching House oversight hearings. Because as I'm sure all your listeners know, yeah. uh, the Democrats now control the House, and that means uh, Bobby Scott of Virginia mm-hmm. uh, now controls the uh, House Education Committee is the chairman. He's going to be very interested in calling up Betsy DeVos and her deputies to talk and question her about civil rights, the Every Student Succeeds Act, mm-hmm. and grill her basically on why she's, for example, repealed a lot of Obama-era guidance. So especially early on, as I said, that's going to draw quite a few eyeballs on Capitol Hill. So we will be tracking all of that, of course, as will the listeners of this show, I'm sure. But Andrew, wait, do you, you've been doing this a while. I mean, do you have any sense that these kinds of hearings have any impact out there in the real world or or that they lead to changes? I mean, do we, you know, and David, you weigh in too. I mean, do we have any reason to think that Betsy DeVos might change her positions on some of these things because of these hearings or she just has to grin and bear it? I mean, what, what should we be watching for? Well, I think it partially uh, depends on how you define the real world. Uh, As to to the narrow point of Betsy DeVos, no, I I don't think it's it's smart to expect that based on a particularly tough hearing on Capitol Hill that she'll 
suddenly see the light, so to speak, and, and you know, accede to the Democrats' demands. Um, I, I do think it matters, you know, with the Democrats' political base. Uh, Betsy DeVos is not a popular figure, uh, to put it mildly, uh, among a lot of uh, the people that Bobby Scott uh, wants to address and have mm-hmm. pay attention. So I think when it comes to getting people, you know, to pay attention and, and get more interested in the political angle of uh, what DeVos and the Education Department have been doing, uh, I think it does matter to Scott and Democrats mm-hmm. in Congress that they get the message out there beyond the beltway. So to that extent, I think it, it, it could have a political impact. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. David, what, what, what's your take on that? And and another question is, would, would the Trump folks be smart to, whenever they can, send somebody other than Betsy DeVos to do these hearings? You know, send the assistant secretaries, the deputy secretaries. Yeah, I think the, the answer to that second question is probably yes. Um, yeah, I don't. I wouldn't claim any particular um, political expertise. That's why I work at a think tank, Mike. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I mean, in my experience, right, it's mostly kabuki theater and or just sort of extracting your pound of flesh, regardless of, of which side of the aisle you're on uh you know if you get enough outrage and pressure through these things Mm -hmm. um you know sometimes you can force i think people to walk back whatever they're doing but i'm not sure frankly that hearings are the best way to do that right it's usually something spontaneous i think yeah something goes viral Mm -hmm. and and then there's outrage but um you know, hearings don't really do that anymore, right? I mean, the news gets out beforehand. Well, and you also are, you know, will give the administration a chance to make their case. I mean, for example, on discipline, we haven't really heard them do say much. I mean, they put out the change in policy. They had some uh, some papers written. This all came out right before the holidays when uh, not a lot of people were paying attention. Uh, Andrew was able to, you know, get a hold of me on my cell phone while I was already away. <laughs> That's right. For example, yes. Um, but, you know, this could be a chance for the administration to spell out. Here's why. Let's talk about what we thought was wrong with the Obama era guidance on school discipline. Here's what we're trying to do. You know, uh, we remain committed to civil rights enforcement, but we disagreed strongly with the old policy for X, Y, and Z reasons. I mean, that could be, now, if anybody's paying attention, that could be helpful uh, to them, and it could also be helpful for their own base. And and I'm glad you brought up school discipline, because I think it's important for listeners to remember that Bobby Scott, uh, before his time in Congress, he was a civil rights attorney. Yeah. And in addition to that, a school discipline, if it's not uh, his top issue, uh, discipline and racial disparities resulting from uh, different discipline policies. It's not his top issue, it's in his top yeah. three. So that might yeah. be the first hearing uh, he calls when it comes to K-12. Yeah. He might do higher ed first yeah. when he calls an oversight hearing. Um, and to David's point, uh, Democrats on Capitol Hill have, have indicated to me that they, they don't just want DeVos for the, mm-hmm. you know, for the circus. Um, they do want, you know, assistant secretaries and things like that. Now, we'll see if they hold to that. Yeah. The, some of them might be very tempted to just get DeVos up there quite a bit. We'll see. Um, and, you know, there's pressure from leadership to get DeVos in front of the cameras and things like that. So, um, but but discipline, I think, is a good bet in terms of what comes up first in an oversight hearing. Let's talk about one other thing, which is appropriations. Even if there's not other bills that get passed, uh, they usually eventually pass appropriations bills. Crazy that this past year they actually got the education bill done on time which is why the department of education is not part of this partial government shutdown that we're living through this must have been the first time in decades i don't know over 10 years maybe did did do you know, did you get data on that when the last time they passed a, an education appropriations bill on time? I don't want to say the exact year. Someone did tell me a while back, several months ago, when it did pass yeah. on time. Uh, but but I believe it's been well over a decade, yeah, if not I, much I, longer. I think that's right. Um, and so here's the, the 
question, I guess, is with the House taking, uh, Democrats taking over the House, do we expect any big appropriations debates around K-12 education? Uh, or is it likely to be kind of more of the same, which is that they've allowed spending to float upwards some, but not in dramatic ways? Yeah, I, I think there will be more debate on the House side because you'll have, in addition to Bobby Scott, you'll have Rosa DeLauro in charge of the House uh, subcommittee on appropriations that deals with K-12. So I think she'll try and push the Democrats' priorities out there in terms of funding. Uh, the administration, I expect, will, when the time comes, propose more school choice measures uh, for the upcoming uh, fiscal year. And those will be ignored. Uh, they will probably be ignored by <laughs> yes. both parties. So I, I, I don't think it's unreasonable to expect um, a continued sort of slow growth in education yeah. spending like we've seen under the Trump administration, which Maybe yeah. some people didn't expect. You know, it'd be interesting to see if the Democrats will try to attach uh, some things to the appropriations bill on policy. So, for example, uh, try to do say something about school discipline, you know, that they have to revert back to the old policy on school discipline. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah. where did they learn that from, Mike? Uh, oh, it's been going on a long, long <laughs> okay, time, right. David. Let me tell you. Yeah, this is not a new, uh, a new trick. It's Someone an old game. Yeah, yeah. It's an old game. Uh, but you still do have a Republican Senate, so you would imagine <laughs> that something like that would get out. But again, it's so... You know, so much of this, it feels like, well, they're going to post, you know, there's going to be posturing, there's going to be symbolism. I mean, the president's budget is largely, sim, you know, just sending signals about what they care about, and then it will be largely ignored. And then likewise, that some of these things that get passed. I mean, should we be wishing, Mike, that that education stays in the news or out of the news? <laughs> I mean, honestly, though, right? Is uh, anything, is it going well if any issue gets in the news? Uh, I, I think you're, you make a good point. And, sure. and I think it's likely to be out of the news for the most part, K-12 education, at least the Washington news. Again, I'm sorry, Andrew, I know that's your beat, but, uh, you know, it's just hard to compete with all the other craziness in this town. And look, there is stuff happening out there in the in the quote real world, you've got a teacher strike about to happen in Los Angeles, for example, that yes. has real impacts on hundreds of thousands of families and teachers. So, you know, th I think that it's, it's tough uh, to say a Kabuki theater hearing is going to be able to compete with something. Like that. I do think there's a point to be made and props to my colleagues at Ed Week who cover other issues. If you think about the biggest education stories of 2018, yeah. we're thinking about teacher protests and strikes. We're thinking yeah. about what happened in Parkland okay. and all the yeah. subsequent debates and arguments that grew out of that tragedy. Mm -hmm. So those are not Washington stories. Mm -hmm. Some of it might have uh, grown out of things that happened in 2017 and the increased attention on education in Betsy DeVos, but those are not yep. Washington stories. Those are out there way beyond the belt. Yep. All right. Last, last question for both of you. I'm already on the record uh, saying that uh, Secretary DeVos has earned a respectful return to private life. Yes, you have. Uh, and I actually thought that it might be imminent, but here we are, January, and she's still here. Uh, will she be here by July 4th? Yes. David says yes. Shouldn't she have left by now if All she wasn't right. going to be? Okay, okay. I, I'm not going to say yes or no. I know I'm dodging. but I, I, Well, I, you're a reporter. I, I, I do. That's I do think that's a fair point that she could have announced on November 9th or 10th that yep. I'm out of here with the house changing hands. Um, I do think there's the possibility that she's turning more to higher ed because yep. she could do more in that space. Potentially, I'm not an expert on those policy debates, yeah. but uh, there's potentially more for her to do there than K-12. Yep. And we understand she was in some kind of road bike accident, right? Cycling accident. Uh, she yeah. was. She's, uh, according to her press secretary, she's recovering, but still right. checking in with the office since it is, as you noted, still open and funded. So yeah. uh, she uh, right. seems to be okay. Well, we'll send our best wishes for a speedy recovery. And that is all the time we've got for Ed Reform Update. Andrew, hope you'll come back sometime. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. All right. That is all the time we've got. And now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. 
Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Did you watch the big national championship game, the college football? Oh, no. My husband did. I did not. Did, did you hear not it have much. Clinton crushed it. <laughs> I did hear that. I saw the headline. Alabama. I did hear that. Uh, yeah. So I Crimson just Tide, that was a huge upset, obviously. Yes. Yes. I mean, look, no hate for Alabama. It's just, you know, they've been so dominant. Dominant forever. It's like, yes. you know, if the Patriots got crushed in the Super right. Bowl. which It's you know, a big I, deal. Yeah, I mean, it just feels good. So, yeah. <laughs> Go shout out to Clemson. Yeah, all right. And the coach there, this guy Dabo, seems amazing. He yeah, just seems right. like an incredible leader. Uh, you know, totally about ethics, and but also fun and all doing right. it the right way. So, hey. And the kids got to keep up the grades to play football. You mean that kind of thing? Yeah, they got to yeah. keep up the grades. They know, you know, yeah, absolutely. All Football right. and ethics, match made in heaven. I'm <laughs> telling you, David, you should be open to it. <laughs> okay, Amber, what you got for us? We're going to recap the top research minutes of 2018. Mm, fun. Ooh, wouldn't we that like going to be fun? I know, it's going to be a list. And we're going to start with number five and the effects. This doesn't sound like, a, like it's a really, it's getting off to a bang, but these are good. This is a good list, uh-huh. okay? The effects of low-cost efforts to mitigate chronic absenteeism. You know how I was really oh, into yes. all the nudge studies yeah, this yeah, past yeah. year, and uh-huh. there's a whole wave of these things that are really cool. Uh-huh. Um, so we talked about, like, you know, most states have this fifth indicator around, you know, student absenteeism and their S accountability yeah, systems. Yeah. And this seemed to me like a study that could actually inform real state department yeah. and policy, that kind of thing. Um, so it, we examined the results of a randomized experiment in Philadelphia where parents were provided with information about their child's absences mm-hmm. or not. Y'all remember in this? Yeah. And so some kids parents got to know okay just like this generic thing like you should make sure your kids are in school and then other ones got like the number of absences Mm -hmm. the kids had and the other ones got like the modal number of uh, absences in the classroom Mm -hmm. basically they found that providing parents with their kids total absences meant that students were 10% less likely to be absent and providing info on their classmates absences meant they were 11% less likely the percentages were much lower when they just got the generic reminder okay and the analysts say that parents may not realize how many days their kids are actually missing school across the entire school year, right? Way, do, do these parents not have the Find My Phone app on their phone where they're not tracking their kids, kids. every, every I don't uh, think movement? Everybody might not do that. <laughs> well, I'm doing it, let me tell you. And my kids have a phone, which they don't yet, but I'm still All right, that was number five. That, that, that just fell into the like real world research yes, that might good. actually help yep. real people. Nice. Yep. Number four, uh, how NCTQ ratings affected teacher ed programs. All right, remember this one? This was from Dan Goldhaber in April, Corey Codell. I love this study because remember the big brouhaha that came out about mm-hmm. these teacher prep ratings, yes, right? In 2013, yep. they hated it. There was this mass revolt against mm-hmm. them, right? So this was, I mean, people remember, but anyway, they looked at over a thousand programs, in-depth studies of the syllabi and these various mm-hmm. reading programs, big contentious reports. So Calder comes along behind and does a sort of a, an experiment, mm-hmm. right? And they actually try to see whether t- edge schools were responsive to these publicly released ra- ratings. Yeah. And so they gave them a little nudge. Here we go. Nudge again. And they said, you know what? You could actually increase your score if you did X, Y, and Z. And so, for instance, you know, in some cases they might say, yeah, if yeah, you yeah. if you increased your GPA to 3.0, your, mm-hmm. your rating would go up. Um, and then they they randomly assigned the programs to these mm-hmm. different things. Some of them got the nudge, some of them didn't. The key finding, the treated programs actually had slightly lower ratings <laughs> from 2013 <laughs> to 2016 than those of the control group. Analysts are scratching their head going, what the heck? Yeah. Um, and what they posit is that the 
there was so much existing hostility, who knows, toward the ratings that they actually fell on deaf ears. Yeah. You know, maybe it was like, you know, middle Amber, finger to you. No, I don't know. Number four, Amber. I come just on, think number that four. it's, yeah. But the we good, all know how you feel about Dan Goldhaber the, and his work. I have a research crush. Dan I knows am. this. Mm-hmm. Uh, the good news is that the descriptive part of the analysis found that about a quarter of the programs actually improved overall. So even though there was a study couldn't say the, yep. the, pro, the ratings yep. caused it, there hey, was some we improvement. We love it when think tanks have impact. We love it. Not Number three. Come on, people. Number three. <laughs> David. Perverse how, impact? Okay. How same race teachers affect students' long-term educational outcomes. This Boom. is Seth Gerst- Gerstens just doing like, and Constance Lindsay. There's a handful yeah. of these guys. Mm-hmm. They've been really digging into the importance of teacher-student race match. Yeah. And they did another important study this year where they actually built on their prior work. This time they're looking at the ex- uh, impact of having a black teacher in elementary school on black students' high school graduation and college enrollment rates. They go back. I did this one not too long ago. I think it was November. They go back and leverage the rigorous random assignment carried out in the Tennessee Star Class wow, Size Experiment so smart, from yeah. 1986. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're essentially comparing the impacts on black students who did and did not have a same race teacher within the same school in their first star year. They find that black students randomly assigned to a black teacher sometime in grades K through three are 7% more likely to graduate from high school and 13% more likely to enroll in college compared to their peers in the same school who are not assigned a black teacher. Once again, beat on the drum like, okay, how do we recruit more teachers of color? And also one of the neat suggestions they have is like, okay, maybe it doesn't have to be that. Maybe just exposure to a mentor of the same race, Mm -hmm. we could see a similar bump. Okay. Mm -hmm. Number two, I'm cruising right along. Mm -hmm. The relationship across the globe between testing policy and student achievement. Remember this one snuck in. We're like, where? This is Ludger Woosman. Why did this not get And Eric Hanischek, um, they examine how tests implemented worldwide uh, and for what purposes. They look at implementation. They perform their analysis at the individual student level, building a database of over 2 million students in 59 mm-hmm. countries, observed over six ways, waves of PISA through 2000, 2015. They had this neat little, oh, I won't get into methodology. But it was a cool study. The key finding is that testing systems that use standardized tests to compare outcomes across schools and students produced increased student outcomes. For example, if you change from not using a standard test for external comparison to actually using a test to compare, Mm -hmm. um, it's linked to an increase in math achievement of more than one quarter of a standard deviation. Systems that compare student outcomes also produce greater results than systems relying on formative tests Mm -hmm. that cannot be readily compared across schools and classrooms. And finally, tests for the purpose of internal teacher monitoring, like use of inspectorates was one of those in that category, um, insignificant results. So bottom line, using tests for comparative purposes is good. Number one. As measured by tests. As measured by tests. Yes. Drum roll. Am I okay, the only one drum, drum roll here? That's going to sound crazy. And everybody, <laughs> ears are hurting now. All right. Number we're, 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 one. Some sound effects here. Number one is the yes. RM that I didn't even cover. David covered this RM. Ooh. And Mike wrote a uh, five-part series on the study. Oh, right. What was it? Come on, people. You wrote yeah, a five-part yeah. series Wait, on this not study. Give it the number one study of the year. Are you? I hear that it's study. A no, yeah, that's why I'm giving it because uh, you went ballistic on this study, oh Mike. Oh my gosh, Amber! You I, went I, ballistic. One means good. What, uh, what is no, this? no. One means most attention. Oh, this one is like most the attention. this is like the man or woman it of the year. Mean, it doesn't have to be. It doesn't a good mean person. highly rigorous. Yeah, it can no. be Blake Shelton, <sighs> right? Yeah. It yes, means yes, like how much attention the relationship between tests, etc. Yes, Colin Hill. Yes, five-part series. For our read or listeners who did not get, I don't know, was it five or six part series I you wrote? Five, five, a few follow up. 
Right. And then, and then David did the RM, I think. Um, reviews of research literature on short-term test score impacts and long-term student outcomes for school choice programs. They reviewed all the rigorous studies. Basically, they came back and said, okay, we're going to look at school choice programs that have impact estimates for both student achievement and attainment high school graduation, mm-hmm. college enrollment, college graduation, they conclude that, quote, a school choice program's impact on test scores is a weak predictor of mm-hmm. its impacts on longer-term outcomes. You took them to ask for that. And I wasn't the only one Ooh. at different times. We've yes. had uh, similar uh, concerns expressed by people like David Steiner, like Dan oh, Goldhaber. Yes. And you said basically that, you know, um, different no. choices would result in dramatically different fines. So there were some decisions that they made yeah. Yeah. that other people could come in and make different decisions and yeah. they would have looked a little bit different. Yes. No, it's 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 a it's an important question that they're getting at. I just didn't think that they uh, did it quite right. They uh, both in how they define school choice programs and in what it took uh, for them to find that a study showed, uh, you know, the same direction for both uh, short-term test score impacts and long-term outcomes. Um, That's right. So, uh, as I dug into it, I think there's plenty of reasons to, to still be encouraged that in most cases for bona fide school choice programs, when you see uh, student achievement go up in the short term, you see positive outcomes long term as well. So there. Well said, Mike. Thank you. <laughs> All right, honorable mention. Okay, because I always have to have oh, honorable mention. Oh, you're cheating, mention. Amber. I always cheat. All right. I looked at many, many, many. Um, maybe it's just me because there are particular studies that I just like because they have real impact on the ground, like mm-hmm. it sounds to me. So this was a Josh Goodman study. came out in September. He looked at whether encouraging more students to retake the SAT mm-hmm. multiple times would narrow the college enrollment gap. Remember mm-hmm. we covering this study? That was cool. And yeah. lo and behold, it did, right? Yeah. So just encourage the kids to take the SAT more than one time. Yep. A lot of them don't know they can take it more than yep. one time. They don't know that their highest score is the one that's accepted. Right. Sometimes they don't know that. You're right. This could have life-changing outcomes yes. for some kids. So yeah. when those studies come in where they're rigorously done and they also like impact mm-hmm. real people, real kids, or policies, like I love those studies. Yes. So anyway. Good. That's, hey, it sounded like 2018 was a pretty good year in education research. I think so. Fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this is good. Now, the question is, as we're getting more findings about things that work, uh, how to get them actually used out there in the real world. (laughs) We're going to fix that problem in 2019. Easy. Easy, Mike. We're all over it. Piece of cake. All right. (laughs) That is all the time we got for this week. So, until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.